Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $151 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Happy March to everyone, a month I consider one of my favorites as a Blue Blood Kentucky Wildcats fan. Besides the wall-to-wall college basketball that March Madness brings, there are also the watch parties, which feature plentiful food and drink. In a year where economic bad news continues to pile in, we could all use a distraction from the stubbornly high prices that continue to have a grip on our everyday lives. Should inflation and the Fed's aggressive response in fighting it tip the economy into a recession this year, consumer spending patterns could definitely take a breather. One area less likely to see a big drop in purchases is consumer staples, which includes companies that make paper towels, laundry detergent, and of course, potato chips and beer. To help explain the relative resilience of staple companies, why they could be good investments through turbulent markets, and to get his take on the best new products on grocery shelves, I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast booth, Rob Busing, Senior Analyst at ClearBridge for Consumer Staples. Rob will also highlight the impacts of inflation on consumer purchasing and company profits in today's podcast, Sticking with the Essentials, the Case for Consumer Staples. Rob, it's good to have you back on the podcast here. We're beaming you in from San Francisco, so welcome back. Thanks for the time, Jeff. Really excited to talk about this very dynamic sector. Yeah, I think this is a perfectly timed podcast because with the reacceleration of economic activity, you've seen a shift of leadership from defensive areas like consumer staples back into more cyclical areas of the market that would benefit from this reacceleration. So I think this is a a really opportune time because I'm expecting some choppiness as we look out on the horizon. If you look at consumer staple companies last year, prime example of their resilience, right? In 2022, the S&P 500 was down 18%. Consumer staples as a sector was down less than 1%. Um, Third best performing sector, very defensive in nature. So I want to start this podcast off from a 10,000 foot view. Rob, maybe talk about the characteristics that make consumer staples good defensive plays when you, you do have some economic volatility. Absolutely. In general, I would say consumer staples companies typically play in categories where demand from consumers tends to be more stable both in stronger and in weaker economic conditions. As an example, if you're feeling really confident about your job and you get a big bonus, you might splurge on a big vacation or upgrade to a newer car, but it's not likely that you're gonna materially increase your consumption of toothpaste and toilet paper. Similarly, if your income falls and you have to tighten the belt, you're likely to first cut back on big discretionary purchases. You might stop going out to eat as often or cut a few vacation trips. But your toothpaste and toilet paper usage is likely going to be pretty consistent. If things get really bad, you might trade down your typical brand to a cheaper store brand or try to reduce your usage frequency somewhat. But if you're at the point where you're trading down your toothpaste, you've likely already cut spending pretty aggressively in other areas. This dynamic explains why staples are typically a lower volatility sector. They don't benefit as much from accelerating growth in the economy, but they also tend to be more protected as things take a turn for the negative. Hence the word staples, right? The backbone of of someone's spending patterns, right? Um, All right. Very interesting. But I want to talk a little bit about what has been the, the topic of conversation for the last three years, which is inflation, right? It's been 
highest we've seen in, in 40 years. And a lot of companies have enjoyed the best pricing power they've seen in decades. But that's starting to change at the margin. So in regards to consumer stable companies, again, providing those necessities that you mentioned before, like toothpaste and toilet paper, how are they doing with inflation in this environment? And, you know, is this what you typically see with them in a higher inflationary environment? Well, taking a step back, I would say, broadly speaking, Staples companies have been historically quite effective at passing through inflation in their costs through to pricing over time. Although in high inflationary environments like we've seen recently, there can be a lag as it sometimes takes a few quarters or years to fully pass through that pricing. And that can lead to short-term margin pressure. However, that over time, Staples have shown a pretty good track record at passing through pricing and thus protecting their margin. There is a euphemism in the industry called revenue growth management, which essentially represents the entire playbook of how Staples companies can maximize revenue per unit of volume. This includes the obvious things like raising list prices on what you see at the store. There's also a strong track record in altering package sizes to reduce the quantity in the box while keeping the price point the same that effectively raises the price per unit. That's uh, the so-called term shrinkflation, which I'm sure many of us have read about. This is effective because many times consumers are anchored to hitting a certain dollar price point and there is a actual measurable drop in demand if the product falls above that price point. Additionally, Staples companies can alter promotional spending in terms of reduced promotional frequency or lower discounts, and that can further raise their effective pricing without necessarily being as visible to consumers as a list price increase. Also, I would note that for us in the U.S., seeing inflation running at a high single-digit rate is, is pretty remarkable, but many Staples companies have successfully operated for decades in structurally inflationary markets like Argentina, Brazil, Turkey, where inflation could be high double digits or even triple digits on an annual basis. And that gives them a pretty good playbook on how to successfully manage a product portfolio and pricing in a highly inflationary environment. So for them, this high single digit U.S. inflation is frankly something that actually isn't that crazy. And they have a pretty well-worn playbook on how to pass through pricing over time. Wow, that's really excellent. I've, I've never really thought about that, but that's a very valid point, right? A lot of these staple companies are global. It's not necessarily their first rodeo when it comes to inflation, even though it is a lot of us, uh, our first rodeo here in the, in the U.S. But in, in sticking with the macro theme, we, we talked a little bit about inflation, you know, how it impacts the sector. But I want to bring up the, the dreaded R word, recession. Um, coming into the year, everybody thought a recession was a foregone conclusion. Now there's a little bit of trepidation in saying a recession is forthcoming. But I, I do think that that's pretty a high probability as we look out uh, to the back half of the year. But in, in talking about a recession, what areas of staples are, are best positioned to deliver maybe some better earnings and have better margin performance as if that is something that is on the horizon? Sure. So if we start off just thinking about a very rough oversimplification of what a recession means, we could broadly expect a reduction in spending and investment activity across the economy, along with job losses and typically uh, declines in asset and commodity prices. So when we think about the implications of this for staples, we'll have to consider both the impact of the associated changes in consumption patterns, as well as the changes in the input cost environment. So there's implications for both revenue growth and margins. So as I mentioned earlier, in that kind of environment, consumers are going to typically curtail their more discretionary spending first, while protecting their you know, steady state staples consumption, which tends to be obviously something that is, that is important to them to protect. 
This typically will first lead to an increase in at-home eating occasions versus away from home, which are much cheaper per meal versus eating out at restaurants. And that's a boon to top-line growth for most of the traditional packaged food names. However, if you think about packaged food, there typically is a higher private label or store brand penetration as compared to beverages. So that somewhat offsets the impact as you get a little bit of accelerated trade down as people look to save a little bit more money per uh, meal. I would also just note that coming out of a recession, these packaged food companies don't tend to hold on to their new consumption as consumers will again go back to eating at restaurants again. Beverages companies, a little more interesting, they're more balanced in terms of their consumption. You can drink beverages at a bar or a restaurant or at home, um, and it can be actually quite a bit cheaper at home. Your, your cost per, per serve is you know, sometimes you know, 20, 20 to 25% at home as it is at a restaurant. So they actually will typically see, from a company perspective, will see typically a pretty stable consumption, but there is a lot of channel shift in where the products are consumed. And there's some limited evidence for trading down for more expensive products to cheaper products if conditions get quite bad. But even in 2008, 2009, there was pretty minimal impact to this dynamic, and it somewhat depends on the category. Broadly, I'd expect companies like Coca-Cola, Constellation Brands, and Diageo to all have pretty stable performance in a downturn. I would also lump some of the snacks companies in this bucket. Snacks tends to see have uh, somewhat stable consumption as well. Interestingly, impulse consumption is typically a bit more resilient. And in many cases, consumers view that as an affordable indulgence when times are stressed. And we're actually seeing that right now in Europe, where despite a lot of economic stress, Mondelez has reported pretty strong you know, European sales. There's also very little private label in beverages or snacks, which means you don't really see as much in the way of private label trade down. Household and personal care product companies, again, consumption is relatively stable. It's a little less impacted by you know, mobility trends, so you don't see a whole lot of uh, changes in the consumption dynamics due to the downturn but you do get some trade down impact. So you might have a you know, modest tailwind from having people spend a little bit more time at home and thus having higher demand for things like cleaning and trash bags and those types of products. But at the same time, you have more private label penetration in those categories as well. So that, that can be offset by a little bit more trade down. There are certain segments of this market like high-end beauty, which may be a little bit more vulnerable to trade down. But then on the other side of the coin, you have the, the lipstick effect, which, you know, where you have consumers who counterintuitively will spend a little more on beauty products in the downturn as a way to give themselves an affordable luxury in times of economic stress. I think it's a very similar dynamic to what I mentioned earlier with snacks, where people are looking for affordable ways to treat themselves in times of stress. On the margin side, companies across the board will see a tailwind from the reduction in input costs as almost universally pricing in this industry is a one-way ratchet meaning it only goes up. They almost never cut pricing, even when input costs fall. There is some impact from private label here, however, as categories with high private label penetration typically will see more price competition because private label pricing does reset more frequently. Those contracts are typically bid out every six to 12 months. Therefore, for packaged food and household products, you might expect to see some higher levels of promotion to prevent too much share loss to private label as partly offsetting the tailwind from the input cost reductions. However, in other categories like beauty, beverages, and snacks, where private label is not very meaningful, they should hold on to their pricing increases without too much trouble and could see some more significant margin expansion into a downturn, which will help offset any impacts from slowing top line. 
Now, Rob, you mentioned high-end beauty in your previous comments, and I know that a lot of our growth teams have been adding to their consumer staples exposure in recent quarters, searching for durable compounders, which isn't necessarily something that you see a lot in the staples industry. But the beauty business has been a good place to be, especially with China ending at zero COVID tolerance policies and formally reopening and hopefully not shutting down as we look out on the horizon. Now, what do you think about this industry? Is this an industry that's well-positioned? And what are the stocks that, that look really interesting there? Well, I would say beauty is one of the rare categories in staples where there actually is true secular growth as compared to the you know toothpaste and toilet paper examples that I was talking about where your consumption is relatively stable. In beauty, there is a lot of just increases in consumption per person broadly. I mean, I don't know if I can speak for everyone else's experience here, but in, in my own quote unquote shared medicine cabinet, I would say there is a consistent level of encroachment from beauty products from my wife that uh, seems to be interminable. Uh, and I think that's a pretty universal characteristic. The desire to look young and beautiful has been universal across human civilization for literally millennia. So even though there may be certain specific product fads, the underlying favorable consumption dynamics within beauty are very durable. The products are also typically quite high gross margin, particularly in skincare and fragrances. You can have gross margins into the 80s and even 90% in some cases. In terms of the stocks that I think are well positioned, so Estee Lauder is the king of prestige beauty, and they do have outsized exposure to China, which is the largest skincare market in the world. That stock had gotten somewhat oversold on the China COVID lockdowns, and now that that market has reopened, Estee should see a nice reacceleration, largely driven by China you know, consumers returning to travel and to stores again. On the other side of the coin, Cody, uh, somewhat of a unique asset, this is primarily a business in prestige fragrances, as well as having a large position in mass cosmetics. The business struggled for many years under a series of CEOs that primarily came from a traditional consumer packaged good world who were a little overly focused on cost cutting and actually had struggled to pivot the business back to growth. And that culminated in the forced sale of a hair care business that they owned to KKR during early COVID to stave off financial distress. Eventually, Cody's board of directors hired current CEO Sue Nabi, who took over in July 2020. And she has since put in place a very strong team with a lot of beauty experience and a highly coherent portfolio strategy, and that has allowed Cody to return to growth. Cody has also been a uniquely strong beneficiary of the category acceleration within prestige fragrances. And that's been a durable trend that we've seen. All major beauty companies have called this out as the uh, fragrance category has seen a, a real sort of renaissance in terms of consumer interest. And this also is reflective of the fact that China which is the largest skincare market in the world and the largest beauty market in the world broadly, is very small in fragrances. It's still a very nascent category there. So there's a real lot of run runway in China for prestige fragrance, particularly as a lot of those high-end brands are already very strongly resonant with the Chinese consumer. Now, Rob, a couple minutes ago, you mentioned food and beverage. I really want to dive in here because they had a phenomenal 2022 Food was the best performing industry within Staples. It was up over 12% on a total return basis. Beverages was up over 6%, third best performing industry. So it's kind of interesting to think that there was areas of the markets that actually made money last year. But, you know, kind of given that run, are there any valuation concerns with food and beverage or do some of the names in there still have some upside? 
Yeah, I mean, again, it's sort of the question of current earnings versus what's the real earnings power here. And despite the strong performance, a lot of these companies actually had margin compression due to that dynamic I spoke about earlier, where there was a bit of a lag in the input cost inflation versus the pricing that they've actually started to take. And I will say that, you know, if you actually think about like those margins normalizing and you kind of going going onto more you know, normalized margins as you anticipate they recover that cost over time, there is a still fair a fair bit of upside on the valuation. And, you know, I think that under-earning dynamic is, is an important part of it. The other aspect here is that there's still very much a kind of macro overlay here, right? I mean, if we do enter a downturn, many of the S&P 500 companies are going to see much more significant negative earnings revisions as the economy slows down, their demand softens. At the same time, many of these food and beverage companies may actually be seeing positive earnings revisions, right? As you see stronger at-home consumption, you see that input cost deflation start to play out and thus the margin expansion, which we spoke about earlier. So, you know, it, it's almost like the risk really in food and beverage stocks is, is really more around whether the economy has a soft landing and ends up ends up being a little more resilient. If there is no recession, it is likely staples will not outperform from here, as the more discretionary focused names would likely benefit more from the growth reacceleration that we discussed previously. Jeff, I'm sure you can speak to this more eloquently, but my understanding of our you know, house view broadly is given the continued strong employment data, the Fed is going to likely have to continue to tighten beyond what's in- expected to bring inflation down into the target range, which likely does bias the odds in favor of an eventual recession occurring. Although the timing, you know, whether that's 2023 or 2024, that that still remains unclear. Yeah, I still have a strong view that a recession is forthcoming, 75% probability. And, I, I, you know, you've seen a, a general resilience of not only inflation, but in, in employment, right? Inflation was ratcheted higher with some revisions. So the drop in core CPI wasn't as big as what was expected as we turn the calendar into this year. Goods deflation is now over. You know, you saw your first positive print of goods inflation since September. So the anchor that's been bringing inflation down is no longer happening. And at the same time, the employment picture is rock solid, right? You've averaged 349,000 jobs created over the last six months, uh, which is about two and a half times what you saw in the last cycle when you had sub 4% unemployment. So the Fed is very uncomfortable here. The problem for the Fed is twofold. Not only is inflation firming, it's a lagging indicator. It can tell us where we've been, but with an accelerating economy, that's going to put some more upward pressure on inflation. So I, yeah, I, I think the Fed's going to have to keep their foot on the economic break. And I think that greatly increases the recession odds as we, we look at on the horizon. So, Rob, you, you asked about the macro, you know, very passionate about that. Uh, I'm going to keep it with the macro here for a second. Uh, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the correlation between ISM manufacturing PMI and staple performance, right? If, you know, uh, we have a high degree of conviction that a recession is forthcoming, that the Fed needs to bring inflation back to its 2% target. What does that mean with the correlation and for, for staple performance? Yeah, so I, I like this framework because I think it gets at the the prior question you asked, and it, it's an intuitive concept of how do we frame the risk of whether stables are are actually overvalued or whether there's more upside to the names. So, you know, ISM manufacturing uh, monthly gauge of broad manufacturing activity in the U.S. generally kind of thought to be a leading indicator of whether ac- economic activity is strengthening or weakening. If we look back historically. When this ISM index is rising, which intuitively means when the economic activity is accelerating, staples have typically 
lagged the market in that environment. And when ISM is falling or the economic activity is slowing down, staples have typically outperformed the market. And this is especially true when the ISM is below 50, which means economic activity is contracting. And that's had a historical correlation of about 60% over time, which is you know pretty strong. And, and that makes a lot of intuitive sense if we consider what we discussed previously, right? The market more broadly is more discretionary than staples. Thus, market fundamentals will be more affected by current economic conditions and changes in those conditions than staples will be. So if we kind of take that framework and we think about what does a recession mean in this framework, traditionally, ISA manufacturing has troughed between 35 and 45, that index. Uh, currently, as of the end of February, which is the latest print, ISM manufacturing is just below 48. It's like 47.7. And that's down from, as far as I know, all-time highs of 64 in March 2021. So, you know, we've already seen some slowing, and thus, you know, I think that that was a contributor to the staples outperformance in 2022. But, you know, if we sort of expect a quote-unquote typical recession, ISM still has a, quite a bit of room to fall which would imply a likelihood that staples will still have relative outperformance from here. Again, the risk, and what we could kind of see this in the data, is like if economic activity starts to reaccelerate again, you start to see ISM turn positive, that would likely mean other sectors in the economy would stand to benefit more, and thus staples would, would underperform in that environment. Well, one thing I'll mention, you know, we talked about manufacturing PMI being more of a leading indicator. A lot of the reacceleration of activity has been in what's called lagging or coincident indicators. It can tell us where we've been or where we are. You know, jobs, again, more of a coincident indicator, not really leading or, or telling us what's going to happen next quarter or six months out. And when you look at the conference board's leading economic index, the LEIs for short, you've had 10 consecutive monthly declines. Usually when you have four consecutive monthly declines, you're in that recessionary danger zone. So about two and a half times what you would normally expect. And, and looking at the LEIs from a different vantage point, the lowest reading prior to being in a recession on a year-over-year basis was negative 5.7% ahead of February 1980s downturn. Today, the LEIs are down 5.8%. So again, uh, not necessarily the rosy picture that's being painted from this acceleration looking at some more of the, the leading indicators. But again, if we're heading into a recession in the back half of a recessionary sell-off, looking at 1990s drawdown, 2001's downturn, and then also the global financial crisis, the two areas that are really stand out from a leadership perspective is healthcare and, and staples. So given this move of outperformance back into cyclical areas at the expense of staples and some of the more defensive areas of the market, I think this represents a, a really good opportunity as we go into probably a, a more choppy environment in 2023. Rob, I want to thank you so much for for joining me here on the podcast. I, I've learned quite a bit about consumer staples, and I think it was perfectly timed given the the market action that we've seen. So, thank you so much for for sharing your your thoughts and your perspective. Absolutely, happy to uh, share the thoughts, and I hope you will enjoy some fine staples products as you watch a lot of basketball over the coming weeks. I certainly will. Uh, hopefully, Kentucky Wildcats can make a little bit of a run. It's been a, a number of years, so I, I feel like they're overdue. But again, thank you for being here. And I want to thank everybody for joining us here for this podcast. I hope you'll continue to join us as we move through 2023. And as always, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email to us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Take care. 
please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of March 9th, 2023, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.